0: We're going to be this morning looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been discussing the topic of sexual immorality. We looked at it at a personal level, and then we looked at it uh, last week, I believe, at a societal level. This morning we're going to be seeing a passage that touches on this at the level of a local church. Just to give you a preview of where we're going, we're going to come back to the personal level in the next couple of weeks. We're going to go back to Thessalonians and keep looking at uh, chapter 4 there. But we are going to uh, either finish or pause because once we get to our bilingual sermons, that'll be holiday sermons. We'll focus on Christmas and the new year. Again, December 18th, December 25th, January 1st, those three weeks, one bilingual service at 11 o'clock. But for today, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to Not dig down too deep, but uh, look at the whole chapter today. So I want to start by reading it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleans out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler? Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. As you read the book of Acts... It's hard not to imagine what it would have been like to have been part of that first church while the apostles were still around. It's not just being part of a church from a different century or a different millennium. This would have been the very first time the church had been born into existence, Jesus ascended, we know He ascended back to the Father, but before He did that, He gave His disciples instructions. They were to go out and to teach people from every nation of the world, and He promised them that they would, in order to fulfill that uh, mission, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. He also promised them that He would return one day in power and glory. So the early church was a hopeful church or an expectant church. Part of their expectation was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 people or so gathered in the upper room. Something like glowing fire appeared among them and they began to speak in languages which they did not know. And all this, obviously there was a loud noise as well and it caused a commotion, but this was part of God's plan so that they would preach to the people who had come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. Eventually a larger crowd gathers and Peter delivers His famous sermon, at the end of that sermon, about 3,000 people are converted and baptized and added to the church. So not only was it an expectant church, it was a growing church. We also see early on that this was a powerful church. Through the apostles, miracles were taking place, people were being healed. That brought more crowds, that brought more opportunities to preach, and it didn't take long for their number to become about 5,000. The rapid growth and popularity of the church brought with it also persecution because the Pharisees became jealous, but that didn't stop the church. They remained faithful. They remained bold. And so they were also a persevering church. But there were some logistical issues they had to cover because people had come from all over the Roman Empire. They didn't expect to stay long, but having come to salvation and being part of that community made it maybe more difficult for them to leave and go home. They only had enough supplies for a shorter journey. And so people began in the community of God selling their property to provide for one another. What an amazing example of what it means to be part of a family, part of a community. This was an expectant church. It was a growing church. It was a powerful church. It was a persevering church. And it was a loving church. But with that amazing community, however, came a problem. The danger was that people would be enamored with the external, visible aspects of God's people... And lose sight of the heart of the church. God is pleased with an expectant church. He's pleased with displays of his power. And with a growing church, he delights in a church that perseveres. He delights in a church that demonstrates the love of Christ. But what God also wants is a pure church. And so very early in the history of the church, we get Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Many of you know the story. They lied to God. They lied to the church in order to appear more pious than they really were. And as a result, there in the assembly, God strikes them dead. Acts 5.11 tells us the immediate result. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This was unlike any church service they had ever been to. A man and his wife were dead and buried before the service was over. Why would God do that? He did it because he is holy and pure. And he wants a church to be holy and pure as well. That was a principle he had made clear to Israel. You have the example of Achan. who was put to death for, his, for stealing from Jericho. In the New Testament, you have the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. They were a clear to, a clear reminder to everyone that God wants a pure church. There is to be among the people of God a holy fear, a reverence. And I remind you of these things because this is a principle that's behind what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God is pure and he desires a pure church church. He desires a holy church. That was the desire that motivated the ministry of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says to the church, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That was Paul's motivation in ministry. I want to present you pure. I'm going to to stand before Christ and so are you. And I want to present you pure to him. You're his bride. The church is not an independent entity. We are members, Romans says, one of another More significantly, we are united to Christ. We belong to Him, and so we're to be pure. Again, that's the principle behind 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at it a little more closely. And I've chosen to divide our time under three headings. First, we're going to see the application of this principle of purity. Then we'll see the motivation for it. And then lastly, we'll end with a clarification. So an application, a motivation, and then a clarification. Let's start with the application. This is in verses 1 through 5. Since God desires purity in the church, the application of the principle is that when someone in the church demonstrates a clear disregard for the commandments of God, that individual is to be removed. That's the application. Remove them from the church. Let's read it one more time. We'll see how it happened in this church. Verse 1 says... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. We, t- we talked about that word. Immorality is all anything that deviates from God's standard for intimacy. There is sexual immorality among you, and it is of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. He could have said mother. He did not say mother. He says father's wife, which likely points to a stepmother. This is a man who had had or was continuing to have an incestuous, intimate relationship with his stepmother. And it was at a point where everybody knew about it in the church and possibly outside of the church. This is clearly outside the bounds of God's design. It would have been scandalous to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And Paul says here, it's even a scandal among the pagan Gentiles. They would not have tolerated this. But the church said nothing about what had happened. They decided not to act, and so we have verse 2. Paul says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. How are they being arrogant? But more than likely, they're, they're taking pride in their tolerance, in how accepting they were as a church. Maybe they said things like, well, who are we to judge? Jesus welcomes everyone by his grace. Verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. They, they were boasting in how tolerant they were. But rather than see this as an occasion to be proud, Paul says the church should have been mourning. They should have been weeping instead of celebrating. Why would they mourn? Well, they should mourn because this impurity dishonors Christ. They should mourn because this type of impurity would damage their testimony before the world. And they should mourn because a so-called brother appears to have been enslaved to sin. This is a disgrace, and so Paul says he needs to be removed The Bible doesn't use this phrase, but it's common the way we talk about it today to use the phrase church discipline. It's not actually one act. It's a process. As many of you know, Matthew 18 speaks about this. It it highlights the general pattern that should be followed. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you, go and speak to him. And he says, do it privately, just the two of you. Using the, the, the passage in Galatians 6 and also 1 Peter, we know that that is to be done with gentleness, with love. Jesus said that the hope of that is to win your brother back. You're restoring this brother as an effective part of the body. The goal is not to shame him. The goal is not to humiliate him. It is to open his eyes to his sin. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if he refuses to repent, take one or two more with you. Those additional people, they serve as witnesses. They are helping and gently calling this person to repentance. That would be step two. Step three, Jesus says, if the sinning brother refuses to listen even to the two or three, then he said, tell it to the church. And that would would mean include the rest of the congregation so that there would be a corporate call to repentance. And lastly, Jesus says, if the sinning brother refuses to listen even to the church, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For the Jewish community, Gentiles were unclean. You didn't eat with them. You didn't associate with them. Tax collectors were traditionally Jewish, but they worked for the Roman Empire, so they were perceived as traitors. They were outcasts. They were not recognized as part of the community. That was Jesus' statement to them. Treat them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. Now, we know from Jesus' ministry that he ate with tax collectors. He ministered to Gentiles. But his time with them was not intended to affirm them in their walk. It was intended to show them the love of God and to call them to repentance. Apart from repentance, these people remained as outcasts. Just one example of his interaction with with an outcast would be uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She's Samaritan. She's been with five different guys. She's living with a man now who's not her husband. Jesus exposes her to her own sin. And he tells her, I am the Messiah. This is the overarching, um, this is the dominating feature of the conversation. Apart from repentance, those people were to remain as outcasts, separate from the blessings and the acceptance of the people of God. It's not an isolated principle in the scriptures. You see the same thing in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. There were people in the church that were leading a lazy life. So it doesn't even have to be sexual morality. Evidently, Paul talked to them about it. And then he writes to them about it. He mentions it briefly in 1 Thessalonians. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he mentions it a third time. There were people unwilling to work, and possibly they'd even spiritualized their laziness. Listen to what Paul says to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And Paul had taught the church that. You do not abuse the love of others in the church. You, you work with your own hands. He said if, you, if a man is not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. So concerning those who had repeatedly been warned and yet continued in this rebellion and in this laziness, 2 Corinthians 3.14 says this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And then verse 15 says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Once you get to the final stage of this process, there is an element of shame, not that you're directly inflicting, but you're expecting them to experience as the community says, you're no longer one of us, but always it is to be done in love. Paul says he's not an enemy. Treat him, admonish him, warn him as a brother. There is always to be gentleness and tenderness. But in that, there is to be a solemn warning and a clear distinction. You will not be recognized as one of us as long as this continues. And that's what Paul wanted for the church in Corinth. In the Jewish culture, eating with someone was a way of recognizing them as family. They come into your household. They cross the threshold, and you take a responsibility for them. I'm one of them. We're family. In our culture, eating with someone doesn't always carry that idea, but it does carry the idea in the local church when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are eating together as a way of affirming our faith and affirming one another. And that's why when someone is removed from the church as an act of discipline, they are barred from taking the Lord's Supper with us until they demonstrate repentance. In terms of our relationship as Christians with someone who has been removed from the church, what does that look like? Some of this is going to be left open to individuals to decide, but it doesn't mean you can't speak to a person, a brother or a sister. As God opens the doors, you should speak to them with love, with gentleness. But you cannot ignore the seriousness of the problem. This so-called brother, this so-called sister, believes they're saved while their life gives evidence to the contrary. And in love and in gentleness, that can't be something we support. So for the sake of that person, and for the sake of the testimony of the church, we're called to act. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is moving to the final step of what we see in Matthew 18 and 2 Thessalonians 3. The sin is already known throughout the church, but nobody had done anything. And if no one did anything, that was going to have a devastating effect on the church. Paul's command here is not to the immoral man. Paul's command is to the church. Remove him. That is the application of the purity of God. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan For the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Twice Paul says there, I am with you. I'm not with you bodily. He's writing them a letter. He's separate from them. But I'm with you in spirit. And I think that's a way of Paul pressing his apostolic authority upon them. So that they would obey and pursue corporate purity. It's like he's saying to them. I'm with you in spirit. I'm going to find out whether or not you have obeyed the command I'm giving you on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And the heart of the command is verse 5. Again, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Deliver this man to Satan. Well, it's just another way to say what Paul has already been saying. It means to remove him from the church. Remove the church's external affirmation and acceptance of this immoral man. The church is the people of God. This is the the realm of God. But outside the church, we have the world. And the world belongs to Satan. Satan. Satan is the god of this world. Ephesians says he's the prince of the power of the air. Uh, 1 John 5 says the world lies in his power. Paul says, throw the man out into the realm of Satan. Uh, Paul uses similar language at the end of 1 Timothy 1. He mentions two men who appeared to have abandoned the faith. He says, I deliver them over to Satan. It just means I let them go. I release them. I want you to go back with me for a moment. You can keep your place here. We'll come back. But go to Matthew 18 with me. Because I want you to see Jesus' own words concerning this decision, this step. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. This is what Jesus says after he describes the fourth step, which is removing someone. Let them be to you a Gentile and tax collector. Matthew 18, 18. Jesus says, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, release on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. It's kind of a tricky translation here, but literally it says, whatever the church binds and looses, literally it says, shall have been bound or loosed. It means that whatever the church affirms visibly, earthly, it's it's not that they're making it happen. It's that it's reflecting what's already happened in heaven. The church is not declaring or determining something in its own authority. It is simply reflecting the realities of heaven. We're announcing publicly What God has already stated in his word, which is that if anyone repents of sin, if anyone trusts in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection, trusts in his sacrifice for sin, he or she will be saved. That's the gospel. And when someone comes forward and says that, I I repent of my sin, I understand the gospel, we affirm that in in our case with baptism, with membership. But where there is no fruit of repentance, the church will not give its affirmation. Now, no local church is going to do this perfectly. Jesus said that there's going to be tares among the wheat. Only God truly knows who belongs to him. But the church does bear a responsibility of giving an earthly affirmation of God's people. This language here in verse uh, 18, to bind and to loose, is used back in chapter 16 of Matthew. And that's connected, Jesus says, to having what he calls the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's an interesting picture there. Keys are a symbol of authority. Authority to enter. Authority to kick out, to exit. What he means is that the church, founded on the teaching of the apostles has a delegated authority to proclaim who shall enter the kingdom of God. Again, it's not definitive. We don't just say, yeah, you get to go. We make you go. It's on the basis of the word of God, on the basis of your profession. We are affirming that's the role of a local church. People come to us. I'm a Christian too. Wonderful. We bring you into our community. That's what membership is. The opposite, in removing someone, that's the final state of church discipline. That is an individual being removed because the church is removing its earthly affirmation of salvation. It doesn't mean they're lost forever automatically because we'll get to that in, 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 back in First Corinthians 5. It doesn't mean forever because he says that they may be saved. We, we're doing this with the hope that that individual will realize that his lifestyle is not consistent with the word of God. It's it's a wake-up call in that person's life to what may be a false profession, like James says. Don't be simply hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Or Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourself. If a church were to do that, how would Jesus feel about it? Because there are people who say, well, that's that's unloving, that's unkind. Why, Why would you do that? I want you to look at the next verse. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. Again, Jesus Is still speaking. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is one of those verses that is taken out of context so many times that most people's understanding isn't even connected to what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus talking about? What's the context? The context is church discipline, the process of restoring and calling someone to repentance. He has just said that when a church makes a declaration about someone's eternal status, that declaration is a reflection of a heavenly reality. That's what he just said in verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound already in heaven. And now, in verse 19, what he's saying is that when the church makes a decision like that, Jesus himself stands by the decision of the church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the principle of Christ's identity and unity with his people. He identifies with them. Remember when uh, Saul gets knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, and he said, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me because Jesus identifies with his people. Jesus takes that truth, he applies it here even to church discipline. Two or three gathering, that's a reference to the corporate gathering of the church. You can pray by yourself and guess what? Jesus is there. He said that I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is not a verse about how many people have to be present for this prayer to be heard. This is a verse that says when the church gathers and when they make a decision like this, Christ is there. When that happens, Jesus is saying, I stand by the decision of the church and I receive their prayers. And what are those prayers? We pray that an individual would experience the discipline of God and that they would come to repentance. Again, the world says announcing someone's name, removing them, that's that's mean, that's harsh, which... It's interesting because in the world, when someone does something scandalous in a company, they say, he deserves to be fired. Coaches are fired because they can't get their team to win. And then when a church takes a stance on purity and holiness, they say, that's unkind, unloving. But it's because how far we are from the holiness of Christ. Jesus says to that local church, I stand by your decision. He's the one that told them to do it in the first place. Why do we do it? What good would it do to throw a woman or a man out of the church? You can go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is now the second portion. We saw the application or the instruction concerning purity that is cast out a, an unrepentant, a flagrant sinner. But now I just want to direct your attention to the motivation for purity. Why should the church do this? First Corinthians 5. Paul gives two motivations. The first motivation we've already seen at the end of verse 5. That is the salvation of the sinner. The salvation of the sinner. Verse 5 says that he may be saved. His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the church is making an earthly judgment on someone in the hope that that person will be spared an eternal judgment. Well, how does kicking someone out of a church lead to their salvation? Aren't you supposed to be in the church to be saved? How does that work? Verse 5 tells us how it works. You have to go through, Paul calls it here, the destruction of the flesh. That's talking about some kind of divine discipline. Some of those consequences... The consequence of their actions, some of those are going to be direct results of a sinner's action. If someone is driving crazy, they crash their car, they're in the hospital, that was a direct result of their actions. Someone gets upset, they punch the wall, they break their hand, that's a direct result of their actions. Sometimes the consequences are going to be direct acts of divine discipline, though. Not immediately accessible, but God's discipline is upon them. Paul is intentionally, he's not being specific. He's just saying, as you release this man into the realm of Satan, discipline will come upon him. And if God was willing to put Ananias and Sapphira to death, what makes us think he would not be willing to inflict any other kind of punishment in order to bring someone to repentance? Jonah's disobedience led to him almost drowning. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see there were people who were sick and even, Paul says, even have died because of sin in their life. And to understand that we have Hebrews 12, it speaks of God's fatherly discipline. He, he moves us, he works out, he introduces pain in order to move us to holiness This is a disciplinary act of God for the eternal good of his people. Hebrews 12 says it's like a father disciplining his son. So when Paul says the destruction of the flesh, it can go as far as someone's death, but it it includes some difficulty, some pain that comes upon this person because of their actions. To take the analogy of the the lazy people, it says whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat. If they're cast out, they're going to go hungry. But that pain is not intended to be vindictive. The aim is still restoration. The goal, like Paul says, is their salvation on the last day. The motivation is the salvation of the sinner. The second motivation is the protection of the church. The protection of the church. We're not going to spend too much time here, but just read verses 6 through 8 with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, he says, "'Your boasting is not good. "'Do you not know that a little leaven "'leavens the whole lump? "'Cleanse out the old leaven "'that you may be a new lump, "'as you really are unleavened. "'For Christ, our Passover lamb, "'has been sacrificed. "'Let us therefore celebrate the festival, "'not with the old leaven, "'the leaven of malice and evil, "'but with the unleavened bread "'of sincerity and truth.'" Paul is taking something the Jews were familiar with, the, the, the Passover feast, but he's applying it to a group of Gentiles. He's not saying you have to celebrate the Passover the way the Jews did. He's taking uh, the Passover feast and he's applying it in, in, in a fuller sense to, to Christians, to Gentiles. In the first Passover, in the home of every Israelite family, they killed a lamb. That was the Passover lamb. Remember, they put the blood on the post and on the, on the sides of the door. And then after they had to eat and take with them unleavened bread. Today we leaven bread, we put yeast in it. Back then, leavened bread means you had a a dough that was already leavened. You take a little bit out, you put that as a starter pack, you put it in another batch of dough, and then it leavens that bread. And he says, no, 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 no leaven is allowed. Everything starts fresh. Unleavened bread was symbolic of a clean break, a new start. And that was something that the Israelites had to honor every year. And Paul is applying that now to us Christians, saying, Christ, our Passover lamb, he's already been sacrificed. So now we celebrate the feast by removing leaven from our lives. The leaven here is symbolic of sin, leaven is a symbol of influence. You put a little bit in the bread, and it adjusts the whole loaf. And so Paul is saying here, it doesn't take much to corrupt the church. So you need to deal with this. Remove this man from the church for his own salvation and for the protection and preservation of the church. Don't corrupt the church by giving the impression that this kind of life is acceptable. Again, God wants a pure people. God wants a people committed to repentance and holiness. Living the period of Christ doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect. But the pattern of a Christian's life, this is what 1 John speaks of walking in the light, is confessing and repenting. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what we're committed to. Those of you who are members, you make a member's covenant. You're committed to holiness, to evangelism, to prayer. It, it, I'm going to follow that. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but that's the pursuit of my life. I want to do it better. Now, as we come to the end of this chapter, we come to the final part, which is a very important clarification. So we saw the application of purity, we saw the motivation behind it, but there's an important clarification. Look at verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you, Paul says, in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. First Corinthians, we call it 1 Corinthians because the first letter that we have, but it's not the first letter he wrote to them. There was one letter he wrote before 1 Corinthians, and there's even another letter he wrote to them or a visit to them in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. He wrote to them a previous letter and he says, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then verse 10, here's the clarification, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother If he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here's the the clarification that Paul makes. This idea of separation, this idea of removal is not supposed to be applied generically to all the people of the world. That's the mistakes that the monks made. Monks, I'm going to go live in a monastery. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to be pure. I'm not going to interact with anything unclean in the world. I'm going to cut myself off from the world. That's That's not the intent of Christ. We're called to go. Go, therefore, make disciples. We're called to be a light, not cover the lamp, not cover the the, the candle with the bowl. There are some Christians who act like that. You know, I'm not going to talk to anybody. I don't want to work at a job unless everybody's a Christian. If I know someone who's caught up in adultery, caught up in fornication, I'm not going to talk to them. Anyone who's sympathetic to the LGBTQ, I'm not interacting with those people. Is that the message of God? No, it's not. Verse 10, Paul says, if that were the case, you'd have to get out of the world because everyone's a sinner. Everyone has some kind of sin. He goes on the list greedy, idolater, reviler, drunker, swindler. He said that's not the point. The point is again, verse 11 anyone who bears the name of brother. This is a, a professing Christian whose life is characterized by things. The examples you see in, at the end of verse 11. Our purpose as a church, our purpose for being here, like 1 Peter says, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. God has placed us here. He's placed you where he's placed you, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace. He has you there, not so you can avoid people, but so you can tell them about Jesus. The world is our mission field. Jesus said the fields are white. We're called to speak to people, 1 Peter says, with respect, with gentleness, and we're calling them to repentance and to faith. But what Paul is saying here in chapter 5 is those people who have formally expressed their commitment, they're going to walk with Christ, they say they claim to belong to Christ, and yet they refuse to repent. Paul says to the Corinthians, to the same thing he said to the Thessalonians, don't even eat with such a one. A person is to be treated still with respect and with gentleness and with love. And yet it needs to be made clear to that individual that as long as they are unwilling to repent, we will not accept them as one of us. They're not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called. And if we we permit them to influence us, they will be a corrupting influence in the church. That's the clarification. That's what's so important. We're not called to judge. As we said at the end of the chapter, we're not called to judge the people in the world. God's going to deal with that. But like 1 Peter says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And for those people in our own church, for those of us who have made the commitment of membership, when someone strays into a pattern of unrepentance, their life is then characterized by their sin, we will as a church obey Christ by corporately calling them to repentance. And if they are unwilling, we will proceed to remove them from the membership and to remove our affirmation in their life. That's how we apply. The the last sentence of chapter 5 is actually taken out of Deuteronomy. That's how we apply that command. Purge the evil person from among you. This is how we demonstrate a commitment to purity. This is how we demonstrate our obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is how we demonstrate our love to a straying brother or sister in the faith. In the mercy of God, a man or woman caught in sexual sin or any other kind of flagrant, unrepentant sin, in the mercy of God, this person may come to their senses. They may realize the seriousness of their error, and they may come in repentance. And when that day comes, the church will be like the father of the prodigal son. With open arms, welcoming back a brother or a sister whom we have won. That's our desire. That's the heart of God. And that needs to be the the heart of the church as well. Let's pray. Holy Father, we want to bow before you. Recognize that you are holy beyond what we can imagine. We easily assume that others are more worthy of judgment than we are. We forget that we were children of wrath in ourselves destined to eternal judgment because none of us can reach your standard. None of us has lived in a way that matches your glory. But you have been kind to us. Your mercy, your kindness has led us to repentance. And in belonging to you, we now recognize that you call us to be pure. At an individual level, Lord, help us fight. Help us battle, starting in our minds, starting in our hearts, and then outwardly to our words, our bodies. And we pursue and fight for purity. And we pray that as a church, you help us do the same. The world will characterize Our stance for holiness as bigotry, as a harsh response, as unloving. But Father, this is what it is to serve a holy and pure God. That same world doesn't understand true forgiveness and true repentance. And we pray you would give us your heart so that the world can see that where there is repentance, where there is a desire to serve Christ, there should be in this church true forgiveness, true reconciliation. That's your desire. You are the joyful, celebrating father of the prodigal son. You did that with each of us. And we pray you would do that now or in the future when people are presented to the congregation because of sin or because of removal. We pray you would work to open their eyes to the reality of their condition and to the danger that it is to our testimony to affirm someone in that walk. Father, in our desire for holiness, may we not lose the heart of Christ to pursue sinners. Help us have open hearts and open homes to sinners. Give us the boldness as well in love to declare to them the truth that judgment is real and that Christ will save all who repent and trust in him. Give us unity as a church in this. Give us confidence and give us joy. And again, Father, give us gratitude for all that you've done to us. We ask that in the holiness that our church exhibits, more people would come to see and know the living God. We ask for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.